All right, can you hear me now? Yeah. Excellent. I think this is week six, if I remember correctly. I might be off a week or two. Uh, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be the first time. Uh, I was talking to a couple of folks a little bit earlier, kind of in terms of scheduling and stuff, and we'll get into the specifics at the, at the very end of the class. But one of the thing that's, things that's going to happen is I'll be, actually be out the next three weeks. Uh, we're going to be on vacation. I'll be on vacation, which will, will take me out two weeks, and then I'm going to come back for a week, almost a week, and then go back on vacation again. So, um, you know, these, I guess, I don't know, 10-day work months are really, really hard. Uh, so anyway, it's going to be fun, but I'm going to miss you guys. And um, in the three weeks that I'll be out, uh, Mike Garrett's actually going to be teaching. You're going to do Attributes of God, all three, do you think? At least the first two, and then the, then we'll have a mystery week in the in the third week, uh, and then after that we'll we'll figure out kind of exactly where where we're going to go. Um, uh, Ken will be back in the mix. I think he's he's going to probably teach some, and um, you know we'd like to get Stuart you know in the mix because you know this isn't isn't just my class. We had originally designed it where we were like rotating each week, but then we realized that that was going to be kind of like whiplash for everybody, so we decided to. To go, go in bigger chunks, so I got the, the honor of kicking it off. All right, so we are going to kind of continue today in, it's not just Christology, it's, it's Christology and, and Trinity, but we're, it's, it's a looser, uh, the subject matter is a little bit looser today. We're kind of going to kind of go off in some tangents and things like that, and we're going to kind of focus on the, on the deity of Christ. I really hope Stephen shows up. Uh, Stephen Burris shows up because he asked a question last week about Philippians 2, and I gave kind of a short answer, and I want to give a little bit longer answer, um, answer today. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. So, Father, uh, once again, we thank you. Uh, thank you for this morning and the time you, that you've provided for us to, to come together. We know that uh, we can't just dismiss that flippantly. Uh, there are, are people in this world that have to, you know, literally dodge bullets in order to, um, to either hear your word or to um, com, com, you know, be in communion with one another. Um, we thank you for the privilege and the honor of, of this. Um, we ask that you not allow us to take it lightly. And, and in this time, I ask that only truth be um, spoken and, and remembered and just help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We love you. We trust you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, a little review. So, the three biblical principles of the Trinity. You knew where we were going to start with this, right? Did you guys study? So, what's the, what's the first principle? This side of the room. You're, he's got his mouth full, so he can't speak, right? <laughs> Um, there is one God. Very good. Okay. Um, what's the second principle? There you go. God exists eternally as three distinct persons. Then what's the, the third biblical principle of the Trinity? The middle? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Each person is fully, completely, and eternally God. If you can remember these three things, you hear me say this every week, if you can remember these three things, then when you're having a discussion of, of the Trinity, when you're thinking about the Trinity, these are like boundaries that keep you within orthodoxy. 
so whatever uh, idea that you have or whatever uh, comment that you hear, just kind of bang those against these three things, and, and that keeps you, um, you know, kind of keep, keeps you in, in, in on safe ground, I'll, I'll say. Um, you know, last week we talked about some of the heresies, and, you know, we've, we've kind of gone into this, you know, the last two weeks. Then there's, last week we started the four principles of, of Christology, otherwise known as a hypostatic union, uh, the person of Christ, and do you remember what those are? What's number one? Anybody over here? Scanning, scanning. Yes, ma'am. I'm guessing Christ is God in some way. Yes, that's number two. Ah. Ah. Yes, ma'am. There you go. Boom. That's one and that's two. Jesus is fully and completely divine. Actually, it was number one. Sorry, my bad. Um, She wasn't even here and she knows better than I do. So Jesus (laughs) is fully and completely divine. Jesus is fully and completely human. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, you'll be looking in the upper right-hand corner and you're saying, okay, what's that H and what, what's that D? And what we have is a little diagram that help, is a memory aid, right? So, of course, the, the D is, is uh, deity and the, whoops, the H is, is humanity. And so we've got two more things to put on, on this diagram. So what's the third one? Sinless? Is that in there somewhere? Uh, I th- I th- oh, okay, you weren't here last week, Okay. Um, well, it's the human and divine natures are distinct and without confusion. Okay, so uh, they're not intermingled. It's not like uh, Jesus is 50% human, 50% um, divine. You know, he's not Hercules or Percy Jackson or anything like that. He's fully divine. He's fully human. And those two natures are distinct and they're without confusion. Okay. And then the third one. It is the circle, that's correct. The human and divine natures are completely united in one person. And so they're united, but they're distinct. Now, we also talked a little bit last week about what's the difference, what's the distinction between distinguishing something and separating something? Remember the illustration I gave? Go ahead. Separated to remove out of. Yeah. There you go. Very good. I, if I distinguish between uh, Caleb's head and his body, I can do that. I can describe his head. I can describe his, his body. But if I separate his head and his body, violence is done, and I'm, I'm going to jail. Um, it's a similar sort of thing where the human divine natures of Jesus, they're, they're united, in their, in their, but they're distinguished. So we can't separate them, but we can distinguish them. And that's a key distinction, if you'll pardon that. All right, so moving on to new stuff. So what's the oldest book in the Bible? Job. There you go, Job. Okay. Not definitively. We don't know this 100% for sure. Uh, but there's pretty good indication that Job is the, is the oldest book in, in the Bible. Why? Well, there's lots of indicators that uh, Job existed and was probably written around the time of the patriarchs. Again, it's not for sure, but, but we think so. So that would have put him around 1800 B.C., give or take. And when would Moses have, have been? What's that? 15. Yeah, just after 1500 B.C., about 1446 B.C. would have been the Exodus. Uh, so he would have been born just before uh, 1500. 
So Job potentially predates, or some form of it, potentially predates even uh, the, the five books of Moses by, you know, 300 years, or I'm sorry, 400 years. Um, so the reason I say that is there's some really fascinating passages in the oldest book in the Bible. Okay, so let's, we're going to look at a few of them. So Job 9, verses 32 through 33 says, whoop, bless you. Uh, For God is not a man, as, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on, on us both. Okay? So di- digest that for a minute. What keeps Job from answering to God or answering God? What's he saying here? He, he, he needs a mediator, an arbiter, but why does he need that? What's that? He's sinful. He's, he, he's a, you could think of it as holy and unholy, but you can also think of it as creature and, and creator. You know, think about those, those closing chapters of Job where uh, God is speaking to Job in a whirlwind, and he's saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I did all of these things? So we're looking at God's infinite wisdom and holiness versus Job's being finite and sinful, et cetera, and and so forth. And so, you know, the idea is Job is saying, you know, kind of what God said, who who am I to to answer to God? Who am I to argue with God? So what he's saying is he uh, he needs some kind of arbiter in order to, to do that. An analogy would be, think of, uh, you know, a bat boy kind of arguing with the general manager, you know. Now, and then take that and put it on radical steroids, okay. Um, or um, an army private arguing with a five-star general, you know. And then, again, put that on, on steroids, just kind of completely blow it up. The, the, the creature has no right to answer back to the, the creator. So he, what he needs in order to somehow answer to God is somebody between the two of them, right, to, to arbitrate for him. But what kind of arbiter would this person have to be? And the reason I say that is think for a moment if the arbiter is God or like God, then how can Job come to this person? Right? You still have that chasm. You, there's a chasm between Job and God in terms of creator, create, creature, that sort of thing. Now, if, you, um, if this arbiter is kind of on God's side of the chasm, you have the same problem. Okay? But if the arbiter is on Job's side of the chasm, you still have the same problem. You, you follow me there? Okay? So, so what do you do? And it's a great question that's not answered in this passage. But you just have to think, what kind of arbiter are we talking about here who is able to interface with both man and God? So Job 16, 19 through 21, you want to read that for me? So I can get a drink of coffee? You can read it. Oh, there you go. 
O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Awesome, thank you. So you have this, this idea of there's a witness in heaven, there's an, an arbiter in heaven that's arguing on behalf of of, of Job to, to God. And then 19, 25 through 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at, last, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Yeah. So now all of a sudden... In the oldest book of the Bible, roughly 1800 B.C., you're already talking about a redeemer. You're already talking about God or man not being able to approach God on his own terms and, and requiring a redeemer in order to do that. And then finally, um, when we hit this, this one of a thousand, what that means is um, down at the bottom, it's one who soars above the thousands and is not as equal among them, is the uh, kind of the, the, the connotation there. So go ahead. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then... Man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. This is gospel. This is a gospel 1,800 years before Christ. Okay? We're talking about a deliverer. We're talking about a redeemer. We're talking about being restored in righteousness with God. Okay, there's a lot of details that have to work out, but this is something that this is speaking of Christ before Genesis. You know, and I, I just I love this passage because I mean it's so clear and it lays out God's plan. You know, it, it shows that uh, there is a continuity between the oldest book of the Bible and the newest book of the Bible, and everywhere in between. And again, this speaks to, to Christ, and it sets up the problem that we have, and again, a, an unholy creation interacting with a holy God. So it's, I, I think it's beautiful. So any questions on that? No? Okay. All right, so now some New Testament Christology. Um, this is the... Uh, this is a passage that Stephen brought up last week, and I, I talked about it a little bit, but now we'll go into a little more detail. So go ahead, Hannah. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what we're doing here is Paul is getting into application, and he's beginning to talk about uh, the way that the, the, each person in the church should, should treat everybody else. And what he's doing is he's talking about humility. And if you look down at the bottom, um, uh, James White, I think, is uh, where I got this from. But humility is having certain rights and then laying them aside in the service of others. So again, having certain rights and then laying them aside in the service of others. And that is a demonstration of humility. It's like humility in context, if you will, right? So this is the the context by which we go into the next passage. Um, This is called the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ. And in many Bibles early on, it was put in kind of verse form because it was thought to be, again, a a, a song. So um, I'll go ahead and read this one. So we're talking about Christ, and it says, Christ, uh, though he uh, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was, he was God. He was, um, uh, from eternity past, um, he, he was God. He was in the form of God, and he, but he did not count, when he became a human, he did not count the equality with God as a thing to be held on to. In other words, he's ready to take those rights that are his and lay them aside for the sake of humanity. Uh, so, but he emptied himself, uh, not... He did not empty his deity, because that, that would be heresy. No, he emptied he, himself of his rights to, um, to those prerogatives that he would have as, as the creator of the world. And he took on the form of a, of a servant. Now, some folks will say that this thing, a god, um, like uh, Stephen actually brought up last week, Arius, the fourth century heretic would say that this this equality with God as a thing to be grasped meant it was not something um, for him to to become or to hold on to, you know, that sort of thing. So the idea is that Arius would say that Jesus is a created being, that he's a man who was promoted and kind of became God, okay? Now think about this for a minute. What's the, going back to this, what is the point of this passage? It's talking about humility, correct? And it's talking about Jesus being the ultimate example of humility. And if we go back to this and we say, Jesus is a created being, but being equivalent with God was not something that he was going to grab a hold of, how is that being humble? You follow me there? How is that being humble? So even if we were to grammatically say that grasping this deity was something that is you know, grammatically okay of um, becoming or grabbing hold of, uh, clinging to, um, it, it doesn't work in the context of the passage. What Paul is saying is that, that Jesus is divine. He is the eternal, holy God. But he's demonstrating, he, it's the ultimate demonstration of humility because he let that go. He let those rights go. 
and you took on the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Does it make sense? So if you grasp that, and if you can word it a little bit better than I can, okay, then the next time a Jehovah's Witness or somebody starts to talk to you about, about Jesus and you turn to this passage and they make that lame objection, you'll probably have an answer for them that they've never heard before. And then hopefully it will give them, it'll put a you know, rock in their shoe or whatever the expression is, and then they'll go away just kind of with that little doubt in their mind about, okay, well, maybe I do really need to consider this. So he's being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where else have you heard that? Revelation. How about before, before that? Isaiah. Paul is quoting Isaiah here. 40-something. Uh, sorry, I can't remember the chapter and verse. But this, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, it talks about every knee bowing to a name. In the Old Testament, what name were they bowing to? Yahweh. They were bowing to Yahweh himself. Paul takes what Isaiah said, applies it to Jesus, and it is an explicit claim to Jesus' deity. Not claim. Affirmation of Jesus' deity. Proclamation. It's probably a better word. All right? So this is, even if you didn't have another, any other um, text in the Bible that attempted to demonstrate Jesus' divinity, this one would do it. This one is a slam dunk. All right. I won't ask you to read this, don't worry. So, space.com says, in the beginning, there was, well, maybe there was no beginning. Perhaps our universe has always existed, and a new theory of quantum gravity reveals how that could, could work. So what are they doing here? Right? It's this polemical technique, this argumentative technique of taking something that you're familiar with, which in this case is those first three words in the beginning, and then what do they do? I mean, everybody knows when you say in the beginning, dot, 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 you know, every English speaker in the world basically is going to go, okay, God created the heavens and the earth, right? What does this guy do? Space.com, what they do is they take that. You know what they're pointing to. They know that you know what they're pointing to. They know that you know that they, no, I'm kidding. Um, so they say, in the beginning, there, there was, well, maybe there was no beginning. That what they do is they subvert your expectations. They catch your attention, and then they throw you a curveball, and they use that as um, a way to communicate something in a very effective way. Okay? Now, I don't like this, of course. Um, I think it's um, heretical, blasphemous. You can throw whatever word, word, you, want to, uh, on, word you want onto it. Um, but the Apostle John did something very similar in John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, now, I'll read this one, too. So John begins his gospel with, in the beginning, and of course, he has a Jewish, you know, a good chunk of his audience was Jewish, and so the Jews are going back to, okay, we're getting ready to talk about Genesis, 
Okay? And the Jews, well, they're, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles, they're left hanging for a minute because he had a Jewish audience and he had a, a Gentile audience. Um, so it was very mixed. So he says, in the beginning, and then all of a sudden, here comes that, that diversion, that, that, that change, that branching off. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, the word, what's the word behind word in Greek? Logos, right? Logos. So logos, man, talk about a loaded term. Okay. So first, let's talk about what logos would have meant to the Jews. Now, what was the Old Testament, what language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew, mostly Hebrew and then some Aramaic. But then it was translated a few hundred years before Christ into what? Greek. Okay. So the New Testament has a lot of words in common with, of course, obviously, um, with the, the Septuagint, with the Greek. And so when we talk about in the Old Testament, we talk about the Old Testament, what I'm talking about is the Septuagint. Okay? I'm not talking about the, the original, original Hebrew. So if we go back to Psalm 33, 6, we see this by the word, by the logos of the Lord, uh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So we have in Psalm 33, we have this idea that the logos is the logos of the Lord, logos of Yahweh, is responsible for creation. God actually created the world, created the universe through his quote-unquote logos. And, and then par- parallel-wise, he says, and by the breath of his mouth is the, um, uh, by, the bre- by the breath of his mouth all their, all their hosts. So this logos is something that he created the, the world with. My word, my logos, this is Isaiah 55, my logos be that, um, I'm sorry, my logos be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return em- to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so it's passages like this that are throughout the Old Testament that the word of God, the logos of God is, is something very powerful, and it, it, uh, the logos does not, it, it, when God, you know, the logos goes out, it, like it says, it does not return empty, okay? It's never um, unfulfilled, I guess you could say. And if you even go to Genesis 1, verse 3, it says, for, uh, and God said, let there be light, and what does the next word say? And there was light. So when this logos goes out, when the word goes out, when God says something or wills something, it happens. So there's lots of power there. Um, but then you also have, like in 1 Samuel 3, uh, where Samuel is with, with Eli, and the word of the Lord uh, comes, to, comes to Samuel. And then it says, the, you know, as talking about the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and then the Lord stood in front of Samuel. So all of a sudden, this, there's this idea that there's a visual component, that there's a physical component, that here's a manifestation of the Lord when we've been talking about the word of the Lord. And then in Genesis 15, Genesis 15 verse 1, says that uh, the word of the Lord appeared to uh, Abraham in a vision. So now all of a sudden you have this word of the Lord with a visual component. 
And we normally think of the word as, as, very, as just strictly audible, right? So the idea here is that the logos in Jewish thinking was becoming something considerably more than just God saying something. It was a loaded term for them. It was a very loaded term for them, pregnant with meaning. So he says, in the beginning was, was the word, um, and that's just the Jewish side of the house. Okay? But then he's also talking to a non-Jewish audience. Okay? So he's talking to uh, Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, this goes all the way back to like 6th century B.C. with a philosopher named Heraclitus. And what, the, what Heraclitus taught was that everything changed. The world was always changing. He's known for, for the uh, saying that um, you can never step in the same river twice. You ever heard that before? No? What's the idea behind you can never step in the same river twice? The water's always moving. It's going by. So you put your foot in. You bring your foot out. I almost did the hokey pokey, sorry. <laughs> Put your foot in, take your foot out, you put your foot back in, then you shake it all about. Um, <laughs> that was terrible. Um, can you edit that, please? No. Um, and it's different water molecules, right? The, the water is just a little bit different as, as it's going by. So you can't step in the same river twice. We can think about each one of us. How are we the same as we were when this class began? Well, we've shed some skin, you know, my hair is just a little bit grayer, you know, and we've, we're changing just a little bit all the time. And so what Heraclitus taught was everything's changing, everything's in flux. And the idea that he had of, well, how does everything hold together, he taught about this idea called, we called the logos. And the logos was what held everything together. And so, but for him, it wasn't a person. It was a kind of a force a force that has a principle that kind of held everything together. So now what's happening is John is saying, in the beginning was the word. The Jews are hearing this Old Testament stuff. The Gentiles are hearing this um, Greek philosophy stuff from, you know, from Heraclitus, Heraclitus and the Stoics and whatnot. They both have an idea of what he's saying, but now he's getting ready to really throw him a curveball. Okay, and this, this, I mean, it's genius. These words right here, these first few words, are some of the most profound words ever written in human language. I get this from the Holy Spirit, but it's absolutely amazing. In the beginning was the word. And then he goes on to say, and the logos was with God. Okay, so now you have this logos that's with God. I don't think that's really going to shake anybody up at this point, but the idea there is that that word um, with is pros, and it, 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 means, um, it can mean face-to-face, alongside that sort of thing, but it's mo- when, when it's with people, it's, it's like face-to-face. So there's, you kind of think almost like an, an, sort of an in- intimacy. And the logos um, was with, with, face-to-face with, with God, and then here it comes, and then the logos was God. And so, how do you explain that? I mean, I've got to imagine 2,000 years ago, there were people that they had a scroll or they were hearing this. And the moment he said, and the word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, 
they had the, that they're reading, they probably had just had to hit, you know, if they're on Audible or something, they would just hit pause. Rewind. What did he say? Did I hear that right? Because without the Trinity, that's one of the most insane statements ever spoken. You follow me there? I mean, don't, don't let that escape you. This is like world-changing, mind-blowing sort of stuff. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So with God is showing a distinction. Remember we were talking about distinction? Distinction between God and the Logos. And now the Word was God, so he's identifying them together. So they're both distinct, but at the same time, they're identified with one another. Again, it's, it's crazy. So um, I'll move on. So any questions so far? Sorry, I get excited about this stuff. and I lose my train of thought. Uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Go back to Psalm 33, 6, right? And without him was not anything made that was made. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among. The logos became flesh. Um, greatest miracle in the, you know, since creation. It's probably even a bigger miracle than creation because all of a sudden you got the holy creator God becoming becoming flesh, being a part of his creation. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and, and truth. Cool. So this is one, another one of those slam-dunk deity of Christ passages. Um, and, of course, Hebrews 1.4 is... Um, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1 is amazing. So is Colossians 1. Um, but now I want to jump on, on Ephesians 1, because I want to get a little interaction going here. Any, um, any questions so far? No? Okay. All right. You ready, Hannah? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Bless- oh, oh, yeah, we're good. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so um, this is probably my favorite passage in the Bible. And one of the things I want to do here is there's lots of Trinitarian sort of uh, uh, thoughts here, and it's, it's just kind of woven in. And so what I want to do is go through this passage with y'all and, and just kind of demonstrate, one, the, the way the Trinitarian ideas are 
are woven in, but then secondly, it gives a little bit of uh, the idea of how the Trinity impacts our lives and our salvation, etc. So, questions, right? So I hope you guys are, w- are awake now. So what's the tone of this passage? Is there a word that catches your attention just right off the bat? Predestined, okay. Blessed, Blessed. right. That's my thought, is um, this idea of, of being blessed. And so when I ask, what is the tone of this passage, um, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, the tone is, is there's blessing, there's celebration. Uh, the reason I say that, and I've, I think I've probably taught this three or four times now in the last few years, the reason I say this is because probably the first 10 years that I was a Christian, I heard Ephesians 1 taught or preached or, or whatever, you know, maybe a half dozen times. And it seemed like every single time the tone was, it, it was, it was used almost like a club to beat you over the head to, to, to basically the, the idea behind it was that you have nothing to do with your salvation. And it was, you know, like, like Paul Washer would say, I think it was Paul Washer, the, the only thing that we bring to, uh, to our salvation is the, the sin that got us there, or something like that. Um, which, that's fine, that's true. But you can't take a passage like this that is meant to be this celebratory declaration and turn it into something where you just beat the heck out of people and say, see, you're, you're scum, you have, you know, you're worthless, quote-unquote, and I quote, you are worthless in the eyes of God. Okay? And that would be the sort of um, application that would come out of here. And that is a corruption of, of God's word. So what we have to establish right off the bat, is this is a joyous tone. It's a, it's a cause for celebration here. Um, and there's no way that you should come out of this with your head hanging low. Okay. So who performs actions in this passage? Okay. Well, let's look at some of them. Uh, God, the, the Father, who has blessed us, uh, he chose us, he predestined us, and he blessed us, he lavished upon us, um, he made known to us a mystery, um, he set forth in Christ, he united, he's going to unite all things, he works all things according to his counsel, and he sealed, um, sealed us, okay? So God is the one that's basically got all the action verbs, Okay? Then we have these other words that are passive. There are things that are kind of happening to you. So you see down in the green, down at the bottom, you have, you heard, and then you believed, and then, you know, you um, acquired possession of it. Okay, so the idea here is that, that God is the, the, the mover and the shaker uh, when it comes to, to the salvation. So are the Father, so we talk a lot about Christ. And as we should talk about Christ. Uh, One of the things that happens is, um, you know, God the Father is glorifying who? Christ. 
Who does Christ glorify? The Father. So you can think of the Father pointing to the Son. You can think of the Son pointing to the Father. Then who does the Spirit point to? He always points to the Christ. To Christ. Okay. So, but we talk a lot about Christ, kind of at the expense of the other two members of the Trinity. And so, if we look at um, what did the Father or the the Spirit have to do with our salvation, then again, you have God the Father who He blessed us, He chose us, predestined us. So, you can think of Him as you know, like the architect. It's His purposes for which we set forth. And then down at the bottom in the green, you have um, the Holy Spirit who uh, He He transmitted the Word of Truth that gives His role in in revelation. Uh, and then we believed in him. Now that's from other parts of the of the New Testament, which which testifies that that the whole through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enables us to to believe. And then we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, um, who is the guarantee uh, of our inheritance. So he is this. The Holy Spirit is the authenticator of our salvation, and he's the guarantee. He's like the Think of him as the down payment. He's the, the beginning of, of eternal life. So does a certain prepositional phrase catch your attention? What's a prepositional phrase? Hmm? Mm. She nailed it. All right. Look at all those. We have in Christ, in him, in him, in the beloved, in him, in Christ, in him, in him, in Christ. In him. Um, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Because evidently this is a really important concept for us to grasp. What do you guys think? Is in, in him. But what does in him mean? Okay. I'm going to give the lamest analogy in the history of lame analogies. Okay, yes, I love lame analogies. Um, okay, look at these guys. Now, what do we got there? We have a very confused young man in the upper, le- upper left-hand corner because he's wearing a Fender T-shirt and, and playing a Gibson. So that doesn't make any sense. But he, he's identifying himself somehow with, with Fender. We got some guy with a Billy Bass or something um, wearing a... Some, he's, Advertising, eight, I don't know what automated teller machines have to do with anything, but he's identifying himself with an automated teller machine up top. And then you got these guys over on the right wearing Texans gear. And then the guy down below, I guess that's a Trojan, so he must be a UFC, or USC fan or something. So, or maybe Michigan State, I'm not sure, right? So what's the point in all of this? Well, we wear these hats and logos and team logos and things in order to identify with these teams. And what happens is when these teams succeed, when they win, we participate in that celebration. We don't say the, the Texans went 3-13 and 13 this year. We say, we, you know, they didn't go 3-13. and 13. We went 3-13, and 13. okay? Um, last night, Randy was at my house, and he wasn't saying, he never said, Talking about the Astros, they won, they pulled ahead. He said, we won, we pulled ahead. And so what happens is you identify with the successes and you identify with, with the, the failures. And 
probably my favorite example of that, again, relates to the Astros back um, right after they were busted for cheating. I found myself at a funeral up in St. Louis, of all places. It's where my family's from. And I'm on the shuttle bus between uh, the, the airport and the, the rental car place. And there's a guy in all this Cardinals gear. And I'm like, you know, talking about the Cardinals. He's like, hey, where are you from? And I didn't want to tell him, you know, because uh, there was shame associated with that, you know. And I'm like, well, from Houston. He's like, oh, man. And I said, yeah, I, I know. Um, so, uh, so we actually, um, it, it's, it's like almost like a tribal sort of thing. We I, identify with these teams, right? And again, I said this was a lame analogy. It's a similar sort of thing with Christ. There's two teams, if you, if you can allow me to say that. There's two teams that you can I, I, identify with in a cosmic sense. Adam and Christ. So everybody is born identifying with Adam. It's who we are um, as people coming out of the gate. But then some are converted over to identify with Christ. And so if you identify with Adam, when you die, you, you participate in his, humi- his humiliation, his um, depravity, his rebellion. You participate in all of those things. But if you identify with Christ, if you're, in, if you're not in Adam, but you're in Christ, you identify in his victory over death, and you inherit eternal life. Okay? So that is a rough idea of what it means to be in Christ, in him. And it's a very, very important concept to, to understand. So any questions on that? No? If so, Stephen can answer them. No? Okay. All right, so what are these spiritual blessings? Go ahead and highlight them. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, we should be holy and blameless. That if, if you understand who you are in terms of your depravity and sinfulness, that, that's an amazing thing right there. Um, to be forgiven for your sins and be declared not only... Uh, just let off the hook, so to speak, but being declared homely, uh, homely and blameless. That's awesome. Holy and blameless. Um, and then you have this one that we don't talk about a lot. You guys have heard me talk about it from time to time. But it's adoption, um, adoption as sons. Okay? So in the Reformed world, we talk a lot about justification, right? What is the analogy or setting of justification? You're in what kind of setting when you're talking about being justified? You're in a courtroom, right? So the idea is that God is the judge and that you are the, you know, the accused, so to speak. And in, in, in being justified, you're, you are declared not guilty. Okay? And, and you are declared that your, your, your punishment has been paid and paid by, paid by Christ. In adoption, it's different. It's the, the imagery is the household where you have the father and then you are sons. We're all sons of the father. Now, why don't I say sons and daughters? Am I being chauvinistic? The Bible doesn't say sons and daughters. doesn't say sons and daughters, but why wouldn't it say sons and daughters? Because daughters were rarely uh, given the, the right to inheritance that sons were. 
so the legal standing of a daughter yes. is very different than the legal standing of a son. Exactly. We are all sons in the sense that we have received the, uh, the inheritance, or we will receive the inheritance of the sons, not the, not the sons and the daughters. So what he's saying is that we all, we all participate in this, in this inheritance. We all have these uh, in, inherited rights, kind of that sort of thing, right? So, um, so no, it's not being chauvinistic. It's taking the language of the culture and applying it to an eternal reality. And I think that's amazing. But the idea there is that the adoption, the, um, the, you know, the father, uh, you know, if he's the judge with adoption, he, he takes off his robes and then he steps down off of his bench and then he kneels down and embraces us as his children. Okay. And so it's, uh, these, these, um, this imagery is, you have different images that come to mind for these different elements or these different part, um, perspectives of salvation. Of course, we have redemption, um, being redeemed through his blood, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses. And again, it talks about inheritance. And then um, uh, we were the first to hope in Christ. Now, I know, I know that, that you guys have heard me say this a thousand times, but some of y'all haven't. Uh, there's three words that I wish we could take out of the Bible. Faith, love, and hope. Isn't that weird? Why? Because faith, people look at as blind trust in something, right? They look at it. You, get, you have people like Richard Dawkins who say that faith is believing something in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But that's not what faith is. But the world has come to define faith as blind, as this blindness, Okay. What I'd like to do is everywhere where we see faith, just put, cross it out and put trust, because that's what it means. That's what it's always meant. Abraham trusted God, and it was counted to him as, as righteousness. Um, love, what is love? Desiring someone else's ultimate goodness. Okay, good. Yeah, that's, that's biblical agape love, isn't it? Is desiring somebody else's goodness. Right? It goes back to the humility definition that we were talking about a little bit earlier. But in the world, what is love? It's an emotion. It's the way you make me feel, right? And so you talk about people falling in and out of love. Well, you know, if we take that and apply that to God the Father who loved us before the foundation of the world, well, what if he fell out of love with us? Where would that leave us? So thankfully, biblical love is not as, I don't even know the word, spastic, capricious, that's a great word, by the way, capricious, um, wandering as, as worldly love. Okay? So everywhere where you know, we have love in our Bible, I'd kind of like to rip that out, and I don't know what we'd put, probably agape or something. Um, I don't have a good, um, good one. And then hope. In the world, what does hope mean? Wishful thinking. Yeah. I, I'm just wringing my hands, you know, wishing that, that something will be true. But biblically, especially when it comes to Christ, there is no wishful thinking. It's assurance. So scratch out hope and put assurance. Because that's, that's what it means. So it's not faith, love, and hope. It's trust, agape, and, and assurance. So, so anyway, then we have uh, salvation. 
and we were sealed or authenticated by the, the promised Holy Spirit, and then he's our, our, our guarantee. So there's lots of spiritual blessings in this passage. Um, and then finally we have what I think is an overlooked part of um, passage. It's verse 10. And what it says here is it says, it talks about um, making known to us the mystery of his will, it's talking about Christ, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Again, union with Christ is the purpose for which everything everything that God has created exists. To be united in Christ and glorify God through union with Christ. So if you want to talk about eschatology, if you want to talk about the end times, that is the verse that you got to get your mind around. And once you understand that, then you can begin to back up and go through the events and the charts or whatever it is that you want to do in order to understand. Um, in my mind, those events are just events that get us to the eternal state of union with Christ. But that's the point, is union with Christ. And that's when we talk about eschatology, that's not what we talk about. It's almost like it needs to be a separate, um, separate discipline. Call it teleology. Teleology. It's the study of the goals or the purposes of the world. So we are to glorify. You know, a purpose or the end, the chief end of man is to glorify God and, live, and, and enjoy Him forever. Well, let's flesh that out a little bit, and that's a great beginning to it, right there. Cool. All right. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Right. What does that mean? Uniting all that is a fantastic question. To unite all things in him, uh, things in heaven, and things on earth. That's Honestly, I haven't fully wrapped my mind around it. Um, I think the idea there is, um, take this with a grain of salt, but ultimately Christ will be glorified by all things through either their destruction or through their eternal life. Um, I think in probably some way, even the the folks that are perishing are going to be glorify him. They're all going to be in their their proper place, so to speak. Because this united in him is not like, because when we think of stuff like that, in like quote-unquote religious context, we tend to think of like Hinduism where the whole idea of Hinduism getting to nirvana is you lose your identity. Um, in, in Christianity, in the real world, you, you, you never lose your identity. You, you keep your identity, but who you are just, it, 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 it changes. It becomes something, it does become something different, but it's still continuous with, with who you were in the past, right? And when we get into salvation, I'll try to have a little bit better answer for you. Um, Yes, sir. To unite might be a little bit of a misleading translation there. Okay. Uh, to to sum up and bring under his headship. There you go. Okay. Would be a little bit 
wordier that, way of, of translating that phrase. Right. And, and that, um, to, to Jesus, every knee shall bow. And so that actually kind of goes back to what I was saying a second ago. So good. Awesome. Anybody else? Great question, by the way. Excellent. All right. Um, cool. That'll do it. I, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Real, oh, that's awesome. That, that was not on purpose. Um, so here's a rough kind of outline. You know, we've, we've done uh, some prolegomena. Um, for, first thing, think of that as first things. Uh, talking a little bit about knowledge and, and that sort of thing. And we talked about God's word, Trinitarianism, person of Christ. By no means an exhaustive study by any stretch of the imagination. And then, boom, that's where we are. And so next week, starting next week, uh, Mike is going to pick up in, in the attributes of God. And then when we come out the other side of that, um, you know, it, we may mix this up a little bit, but we'll talk about mankind, sin, salvation, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into the other stuff, ecclesiology, and eschatology, and things of that nature, right? Cool. Excellent. Well, I'm going to miss you all. Um, not, as, not enough to stay, but I, I, I am going to miss you. So um, you're in good hands with Mike. And um, Stephen, you mind closing us? Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for another breath. Thank you for bringing us here. And thank you for Fred being a teacher to uh, discuss your word with us. We ask that you would focus us now as we turn towards the uh, fellowship of the saints and the worship of you through your spirit in the name of your son. Always let your will be done. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, sir.